You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 17th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, as the humanitarian situation in Gaza worsens, Israeli forces claim they have found evidence that Hamas had a control centre under the Al Shifa hospital. We'll have comment from the West Bank. Prior to Argentina's election on Sunday, the Buenos Aires Herald has issued a dire warning about the libertarian candidate Javier Malay. We'll find out why from the paper's managing editor. Then... We still have more work to do, but we've made substantial progress. In record time, we've reached consensus on three of the pillars of the IPEF. Joe Biden speaking at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which wraps up today. We'll have a report on the progress he mentions, but also the lack of agreement on some areas and whether the White House is to blame. And because it's Friday, we'll have a sideways look back at the week's news. In 2023, we learn that the man who got the UK bottled off the world stage is apparently the individual best qualified to represent the nation on it. Andrew Muller on why David Cameron is the best person for the job of British Foreign Secretary and much else. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. The Israeli Defence Force says its troops have found a tunnel shaft used by Hamas at Al-Shifa Hospital in the north of the Gaza Strip. It's alleged that Hamas stored weapons and ammunition there and is holding hostages in a network of tunnels under hospitals like Shifa, using patients and people taking shelter there as human shields. Hamas denies this. Meanwhile, the United Nations World Food Programme said civilians in Gaza face the immediate possibility of starvation due to the lack of food supplies. Well, Sari Bashi is Programme Director for Human Rights Watch in the West Bank and joins me down the line now. Sari, many thanks for your time. What is your response to this IDF claim? They've released videos of their fines, but I understand these are yet to be independently verified. Uh, what, what is the readout from your organisation? Yes, thank you. So Human Rights Watch is not in a position to verify the claims of the Israeli military regarding the use of hospitals for military purposes. I can say that any use of hospitals for military purposes would be a grave violation of international law because it it, it puts civilians at danger, at risk. However, um, even if a hospital is unlawfully used for military purposes, that doesn't strip it of the very, very significant protections that the laws of war give hospitals in recognition of the critical function they play in trying to keep people alive during very ugly hostilities. So even if a hospital is being used to commit acts harmful to the enemy, warnings must be given, evacuation needs to be a last resort, And any evacuation has to take into consideration the possibility or impossibility of safely evacuating hospitals. And in the context of Gaza, unfortunately, there is no safe place to go to and no safe way to get there. So Israel would contest that and say that they had uh, issued lots of warnings, that they had given pathways out to people taking shelter there. Uh, Even if that were the case, and if we find out that, in fact, it was a Hamas uh, control centre under under the the hospital, would the likely response from human rights organisations around the world still say that this did not justify the raid? 
I can't comment on, on, on the justifications for the raid. What I can say is that if there was a military use of the hospitals, that would put civilians at risk and would be a grave violation of international law. But the fact that one side is violating international law doesn't give the other side justification or permission to do so. We are very worried about the warnings that the Israeli military issued, which are not effective. If you tell patients in an intensive care unit to evacuate, but there's shooting outside and no safe place to go to and no way for them to safely evacuate, that is not an effective warning. And the people left behind in the hospital retain their civilian protections. In particular, any attack in the vicinity or inside a hospital has to take into consideration proportionality and the, the prohibition against indiscriminate attacks. And proportionality for a hospital is really hard because even minor damage to a hospital can cost lives because of the critical function that it is playing. I want to also point out that even before the raid, Shifa Hospital, like almost every other hospital in the north, had stopped functioning as a hospital because the Israeli military has systematically drained Gaza of life-saving humanitarian supplies, especially fuel. Israel's leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, said that attempts to minimalize civil, civilian casualties were not successful because of Hamas. Do you believe that Hamas is using civilians as human shields? And if so, does that also constitute a war crime? Fighters, including Hamas and Islamic Jihad, have an obligation to, to the extent possible, refrain from conducting military operations or storing weapons or military personnel in civilian areas because doing so puts civilians at risk. We have not, in previous hostilities, we have found that Hamas and other uh, armed groups have violated that prohibition, for example, by launching rockets from civilian areas. We have not made those determinations in this particular setting, and I have not yet seen evidence of that happening. What I can say is that even if um, one side unlawfully endangers civilians, those civilians retain their protections. Many civilians in northern Gaza have said that they have not evacuated because they can't evacuate, because the roads are not safe, because people were killed going to the designated evacuation routes that the Israeli military told them to go to. Mm. There are people who evacuated to the south and then came back to the north because the, the conditions in shelters were so terrible with outbreaks of infectious diseases because of, because of the lack of fuel and other supplies needed to maintain basic sanitation. These families are facing impossible choices. And my concern is that the Israeli military is misrepresenting its obligations. If families cannot or do not leave, they still need to be protected. Mm. And as you say, uh, of course, civilians facing severe hardship. Uh, the, the World Food Programme saying that starvation is a very real possibility. What more can you tell us about the humanitarian crisis and the fact that the UN says it's not possible to get supplies through today? Early in this crisis, the Israeli military cut humanitarian aid to Gaza. They cut off the water and electricity that they usually sell to Gaza. They closed the commercial crossing Kerem Shalom, through which hundreds of trucks came through every day. And even when, late in the game, Egypt opened its crossing to Gaza, the Rafah crossing, the Israeli military has been blocking most fuel supplies. So what's happening is predictable. If you cut electricity and then you systematically drain the fuel needed to power hospital generators, to run desalination plants, 
to, to pump sewage away from populated areas, you are going to see what we're seeing now. There's already been a sevenfold increase in cases of diarrhea among children under five. There have been outbreaks of respiratory infectious diseases in overcrowded shelters. People don't have enough food. They are drinking brackish water from agricultural wells because there's no fuel to pump the water or purify it. This is expected and it can be reversed. The Israeli military must reopen the Kerem Shalom crossing into Gaza as it has done in previous hostilities to allow the full panoply of humanitarian aid that people in Gaza need, and it needs to end its restrictions on fuel entering via Rafah. The Israeli military is inspecting those shipments. It can take measures to prevent diversion, but it cannot block life-saving fuel for 2.2 million civilians. Thank you, Sari. That was Sari Bashi of Human Rights Watch in the West Bank. Now here's Isabella Jewell with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. The Sudanese government has asked the United Nations to end its political mission in the country. The mission was set up to help assist Sudan's transitional government after the 2018 revolution. In a letter, acting Foreign Minister Ali Sadeq said its performance had been disappointing. The president of Goldman Sachs Japan has resigned after nearly 40 years at the US investment bank. Reports suggest that Masanori Mochida stood down without a successor, an unusual move for such a senior role. His retirement was reportedly brought forward amid concerns the bank needed fresh leadership. Troy Sivan, John Legend and Sia are among nine artists whose voices will be cloned for a new artificial intelligence tool on YouTube. A hundred US-backed users will be able to use the feature called DreamTrack. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you very much to Isabella. Uh, You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin. In San Francisco, this year's Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, summit is wrapping up, and it's concluding without a key agreement on trade. President Biden, hosting the event, confirmed on Thursday that language on trade has not been finalised, and other US officials said they expect the negotiations surrounding the proposed Indo-Pacific Economic Framework to resume in the new year. It's not the outcome President Biden was hoping for, but reporter Simon Marks, who's been covering the summit in San Francisco, says many APEC members put the blame for the delay at the White House front door. The headlines here this week were grabbed by President Biden's four-hour meeting on Wednesday with Chinese President Xi Jinping. But that event overshadowed other very important work that has been underway at this APEC summit, which in large measure was convened to try and agree final language for the proposed Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. IPEF, an initiative launched last year by President Biden, is an effort to demonstrate America's commitment to deepening economic ties across the Asia-Pacific region, partly to compete with China. But as this week's summit hurtled towards a conclusion, President Biden conceded the IPEF talks had run into difficulty. We still have more work to do, but we've made substantial progress. In record time, we've reached consensus on three of the pillars of the IPEF. But as I've said, we have more work to do. The problem is that IPEF has four pillars, not three. And while consensus was finalised here this week on supply chain resilience, the clean energy transition and the fight against corruption, the elephant in the room that remains unresolved is the most important pillar of all, trade. 
Many APEC members want President Biden to grant their countries market access and even the possibility of free trade agreements. But the president's focus is entirely on boosting domestic production and protecting American jobs. And for months, his administration has been constraining how far the negotiations can go. On Thursday, Singapore's Prime Minister Lee Hsien Lung offered a gentle critique of the American position. Trade is the lifeblood of the global economy and the trade pillar is an integral part of the IPEF agreement and of the US's economic and strategic engagement in the region. But developing new and creative approaches to trade policy is not easy and it takes time in order to carefully work through sensitive areas. And indeed, America's deputy trade representative says there's no chance of finalising the negotiations this year and kicked the ball into 2024. The streets of San Francisco this week have been home to a cacophony. Sirens wailing, helicopters circling, protesters taking to the streets, surrounding the fortified Moscone Centre and demonstrating over a variety of different issues, including human rights in China, migrant issues in Mexico and the Israeli military assault on Gaza. Inside the conference centre, there were rhetorical clashes over some of those issues as well, with US officials working overtime to try and produce what they called a strong consensus statement for the leaders to issue when the summit closes on Friday. Vedant Patel, Deputy US State Department spokesman, pushed back when I suggested to him that ongoing international crises might limit the summit's success. We have the ability to uh, deal with multiple challenges and crises at the same time. We can uh, ensure that we're uh, helping flow humanitarian aid into Gaza. We're doing what we can to support our Israeli partners as they hold these terrorist groups accountable. We're also continuing to do everything we can to support our Ukrainian partners as they defend their territorial integrity and sovereignty. For uh, a lack of a better word, we feel confident in our ability to walk and chew gum at the same time. And multilateral settings like this are a really unique opportunity to talk about these varying different issues. But the week has underscored that it's not always going to be plain sailing for a U.S. administration that wants to portray America as a Pacific power, but is not always ready to offer a lot of give alongside the take. For Monocle Radio, I'm Simon Marks at the APEC Summit in San Francisco. Simon, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The Buenos Aires Herald, an organ which has a fine history of reporting the atrocities during the dictatorship in Argentina, has published an editorial saying that a Malay government would pose a grave threat to democratic coexistence in Argentina. Well, Amy Booth is managing editor of the Buenos Aires Herald. She joins me now uh, down the line from the city. Uh, Amy, tell me about your editorial. Why is Malay such a threat to democracy? So the editorial is something that we wrote together as a as a team, as an editorial team at the Herald. And basically, the point here is that this is not just another election where you have two kind of political, um, you know, political forces facing off against each other. What we have is um, an outsider candidate who... Um, has proposed some things that really go against basic democratic consensus that we thought had been established in Argentina. So um, 
on the one hand, on the economic front, he's talking about dollarizing the economy and getting rid of the central bank, which um, most economists seem to agree would be catastrophic. And, you know, it would be a loss of sovereignty. It would take away Argentina's control over its economic monetary policy. Um, he's also talked about things like the right to bear arms, like in Argentina, this is not a country like the US where people just walk around the streets carrying guns. Um, and so that is a proposal that worries us in the utmost, seeing how it's gone in the States. Um, he's also said in interviews, these are not campaign proposals, but we find it horrifying. He's, he's you know, said that, you know, organ sales are a market like any other. He's mentioned, you know, being able to sell one's own children. At one point, he said that um, people had the right to die of hunger if they wanted. Um, and then he's also um, really attacked the sensitivities of a lot of Argentines by sort of calling the Pope, um, you know, the representation of the evil one and things like that. Um, because of the Pope's views on social justice, mainly. Mm. And I mean, he's praised Margaret Thatcher. And I mean, of course, she's very unpopular in Argentina. Now, another thing is that he, he does things like wielding a chainsaw in public. He's also said that his deceased dog, Conan, inspired his presidential mission. Uh, is he sane? I mean, I think we have to be very careful when we attribute... Um, when we attribute problematic men in power to having mental health problems, um, because I think the scarier possibility is that he's absolutely sane and he could be in government for four years. The one other thing that I um, wanted to mention is that his running mate, Victoria Villarroel, um, is she's known as a campaigner for like a denialist campaigner she denies the atrocities that were committed during argentina's last dictatorship which was horrifically violent um 30,000 people were you know kidnapped disappeared tortured murdered during the dictatorship many of them were put onto planes still alive flown out over the river plate and pushed out alive into the river um, as a means of disappearing them. Uh, and he's, you know, he had, Millet himself has also denied the numbers of, of victims. Um, you know, he said, oh, no, the real number was 8,000 and something, which is a fairly staple denialist trope. Um, and Victoria Vicharuay keeps, keeps insisting that, um, you know, she's visited some of the most notorious repressors in jail. And she has, I mean, her family have ties to the dictatorship or her, her dad and I believe her uncle were in the military at the time. And uh, obviously, specifically at the Herald, a publication known for reporting on the rights abuses at the time. This is really, really, really worrying. Mm. Uh Sergio Massa is the current economy minister of the country, which, of course, as we know, has rampant inflation. How much of a chance does he have, given that the polls are roughly neck and neck? I mean, do people equate him with this financial disaster that the country's going through now? Or is he seen as a reasonable voice when compared to Malay's libertarian plans to, to shut the, the central bank and so on? 
It's honestly very difficult to call at the moment. Um, I believe that there is a little bit of both going on. Um, you know, Pismilei, uh, sorry, Massa is economy minister, as you rightly said, and during his time in office, um, inflation has got worse. Um, poverty is at 40% now. And while I think those can't can't necessarily all be attributed to Massa alone. A lot of people say, well, Massa represents the crisis, Massa represents more of the same. But then on the flip side, Massa, um, he's seen as a lot more, uh, he keeps a far more even keel than Millet. He's a career politician with an enormous amount of experience. Um, you know, he's been chief of staff, he's been economy minister, he was the mayor of a town outside Buenos Aires called Tigre. Um, he has a lot of contacts and he's proven pretty successful at going out and sort of um, negotiating various kinds of fund, you know, securing various kinds of financing for Argentina, more or less um, holding the situation with the IMF together, the International Monetary Fund, which Argentina has a, a huge credit line with mm. um and so so i think it's a little bit of both you know because then there are people who don't like massa because they say that actually he's kind of flip-flopped ideologically if you will so um at, at times he's kind of been closer to the former president macri who is not you know he's an opponent of kirchnerism and peronism and is now backing Millet, but then right now uh, Massa is back in the is back in the fold with Peronism, and so some people are saying if you vote for him, you'll get more of the same, and some people would prefer him, and some people would not. Mm. And just briefly before you go, Amy, the country is now in the last few days of campaigning the elections on Sunday. What do you expect in the run up to polling day? So campaigns have finished. Argentina has a rule called the Veda Electoral, um, which means that you're not allowed to uh, you're not allowed to campaign. You're not allowed to um, talk about polls um, in the 48 hours before polling starts. The idea being that uh, the voters go to the polling booths. Um, with a clear head and not influenced by any particularly dramatic grandstanding that they may have witnessed in the past couple of days. Um, so I can speak to you about this because you guys are in the UK, but right now uh, we're in the calm before the storm type moment. Amy Booth in Buenos Aires. Thank you very much indeed. Just coming up to 23 minutes past 12 here in London, you're listening to The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin, and let's get the day's business headlines now with Ewan Potts from Bloomberg. Ewan, hello to you. It's another down week for oil prices. What's behind the slump? Hi, Georgina. Yeah, this may come as something of a surprise to you if you haven't been following markets closely, but this is the fourth down week for oil. Uh, crude oil is actually now down more than 20% from the highs it reached in September. That means it is technically in a bear market. Now, it's the world's most important commodity, and I won't need to explain why it is important to 
uh, all of our lives. The latest slump has been driven by uh, a real mixture of factors. Supply uh, basically has been exceeding expectations. There have been shipments from Guyana and the North Sea. Uh, they're set to rise next month. U.S. exports have also been uh, surging. Uh, OPEC plus the coalition, the coalition which includes Saudi Arabia, Russia, and many of the world's biggest producers, is meeting again at the end of next week. They'll be discussing whether there should be more production cuts to get the price higher. Um, the two biggest producers have already pledged to keep additional output curbs in place until the end of the year. So interesting to see if there's more movements on that. But on the other side of the equation, the demand outlook has been pretty ropey. Figures from China, which is the world's biggest importer of cruise, show that refiners uh, cut their daily processing rates in October uh, and demand uh, is down on a month earlier. And also signs of a slowing in the US economy with unemployment uh, benefits uh, rising uh, more rapidly recently. That's showing a slowdown in the world's biggest crude consumer. So the demand picture is looking quite weak and supply has been stronger. And that has seen uh, demand, that has seen the price uh, really dropping. The other factor which you may be wondering about is the war in the Middle East. And we did see a spike when the atrocities were committed at the beginning of October, worries that that would uh, affect supply from the Middle East. But those concerns have been uh, gradually uh, declining in the last few weeks. So far, it doesn't look like uh, the, the oil supply picture has been hit too hard by the situation in the Middle East. And there are some details now emerging of some big changes in China's approach to housing. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, really interesting. This China's property market failings have been a massive headwind for the world's second biggest economy. Prices uh, of property have been dropping quite uh, shit stop sharply recently. And of course, we've had those uh, massive uh, failings from those highly indebted property developers uh, in China. And now there are details starting to come through of two big projects by the government in China uh, as the new centre of its housing policy. And those are building social housing and renovating rundown inner city districts. Now, Bloomberg understands that authorities are considering offering cheap central bank loans to state-owned banks to fund the projects. It's all a bit of an echo of the situation in Singapore. Singapore is very much a, a free market economy, but housing in Singapore is controlled by the government. It is very much uh, social housing very much dominates uh, in Singapore. So perhaps China could be moving uh, towards uh, that model as well, which would be a very interesting development. Uh, analysts say that the idea is to create a highly regulated social housing sector for most people with limits on who can buy house, houses and who, and who they can sell them to. But alongside that, there would also be uh, a freer commercial segment aimed at wealthier households where they'd be able to store their wealth. So it's really a, a twin track approach. Uh, interesting to get more details on this. Ewan Potts at Bloomberg. Thank you very much indeed. Finally today, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, brings us up to speed with some of the more curious news stories from this week. So long, farewell, I'll We learned this week that it had not, in fact, been a waste of the time and energy of a newsroom full of busy professionals to record, the summer before last, a chorus of mock lamentation upon the resignation from the UK's government of Conservative MP Will Quince. 
Not Will Quinn. Surely not. How will we go on without Will Quinn? You're tired of Will Quinn. This changes everything. What are we going to do? Surely not. That's the one. A preposterous, vainglorious, self-indulgent folly, the producers told us when we commissioned it back in July 2022. Those were their exact words. And yet not only did it get a run when Quince quit that time as Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Children and Families, we got to wheel it out again when he announced he was standing down as an MP before the next election, shortly after that. Plus, there was all those occasions on which we used it in broadly similar contexts, but with someone saying something else over Will Quince, like Christy did that time about vegan sausages, whatever the heck that was about. Honestly, who remembers? Vegan sausage. Surely not. Vegan sausage. Vegan sausage. This changes everything. What are we going to do? Surely not. Anyway, we learned to our scarcely trammelled delight of another opportunity to fire it up, specifically that somewhat lost in the uproar occasioned by this week's reshuffling of His Majesty's Cabinet was the news that Will Quince would no longer be serving as Minister of State for Health and Secondary Care. And as this may, who knows, be the last time, let's have a drum roll first. Hit it. Oh Will my quince. God! Surely Will's not. Quince. How will we quince. go on without changes? You're tired of Will this. Quince. Changes everything. What are we going to do? Surely not. <sighs> We hardly knew you, etc. But yes, what we mostly learned from Rishi Sunak's reorganisation of his cabinet table was that we had not, in fact, heard the last of this guy. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. Former UK Prime Minister David Cameron back in 2016 deploying a startlingly ill-advised nautical allegory shortly after steering the ship of state smack into the economic and political iceberg of Brexit. But in 2023 we learn, and yes we're mixing our metaphors, sue us, that the man who got the UK bottled off the world stage is apparently the individual best qualified to represent the nation on it. Well, I know it's not usual for a Prime Minister to come back in this way, but I believe in public service. The Prime Minister asked me to do this job, and it's a time where we have some daunting challenges as a country. The ongoing clean-up of the mess he left us with seven years ago, still not least among them. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. But sticking with the subject of aspiring to a career in public office despite having helped perpetrate an almighty shambles the last time one involved oneself in politics. Well, first of all, um, I noticed in the clips that you guys showed that you did not show the clip of Donald Trump talking about going to the Capitol peacefully. Secondly, I uh, am not a rioter. I did not riot on that day. Tomato, tomato. By the time I get to Phoenix... 
We learned, probably inevitably, that Jacob Chansley, a.k.a. the QAnon shaman, fresh from serving 27 months of a 41-month stretch in the Hooskow for apparently not rioting at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, intends to run for Congress. What? What? What's the point? What's the point? I understand that. Well, indeed. We learned that Mr. Chansley, who appears to have ditched the Stars and Stripes face paint, the Davy Crockett hat, and the horns, will pitch himself to the voters of Arizona's 8th district, which includes a decent chunk of Phoenix, which is why we're playing this song. By the time I make Albuquerque. She'll be working. We learned that Chansley intends to stand as a libertarian, i.e. as the candidate of a party which in slightly over half a century of trying has had precisely one member of the US Congress, and that was Justin Amash, who was elected as a Republican and switched affiliation shortly before quitting. Chansley also claims to be running on the instructions of God, which is always an indicator of an ordered mind and an even temperament. But we learned when we looked into it that Chansley chances in the Arizona 8th might not be entirely forlorn. We are talking about a district which has repeatedly elected Debbie Lesko, pillar of the Republican Party's Trumpist Yahoo wing, and she isn't running next year, claiming she wants to spend more time with her family, which might be worth keeping an eye on, as this declaration traditionally presages the revelation of some reputation-destroying scandal. Perhaps she has read an unillustrated book or something. She'll cry just a thing. But we learned that this was not the only respect in which American politics was having another of its normal ones. We learned that Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, Republican of Oklahoma, was unamused by the online taunting he had endured from Teamsters President Sean O'Brien ahead of a Senate Labor Committee, and we learned that Mullen wished to share the abuse he had received from O'Brien with the room. Pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been. Always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. We learned to our scarcely expressible delight that this was not an end to it. We learned that Senator Mullen wished to invite the union boss to come and have a go if he believed himself hard enough. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. However, just when we dared believe that things were going to get more undignified still, and that therefore pretty much all of this week's monologue would write itself, we learned that we were all to be deprived of just tremendous merriment and by an unmistakable voice. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Actively. Oh, okay. okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Shem- it. Hold it. You're no fun, Bernie. That's why you lost. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Andrew, thank you. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time and I'll be with you tomorrow for Monocle Weekends. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>